So I don't know if you've ever done any uh, research on the human brain, but it's a fascinating subject. Uh, I happen to have done some research on the human brain, so let me pass on some of this information to you. Brain information travels up to 268 miles per hour. According to a laboratory neuroimaging in the University of Southern California, the average brain generates 48.6 thoughts per minute, and that adds up to a total of 70,000 thoughts per day. For you men, mostly it's about being a Roman soldier. And there are 400 miles of blood vessels in your brain. Josiah Ricewick has 500 miles of blood vessels in his brain. Your brain can process an image that your eyes have seen for as little as 13 milliseconds, less than it takes time for your eyes to blink. In general, men's brains are 10% larger than women's, even taking into account the size of men. This is science. <laughs> I'm not trying to pick on anybody here. I don't know if you caught that one, though. T men's brains are 10% larger. All right, let's move on. Uh, your brain's storage capacity is considered virtually unlimited. Japan's K computer is one of the most powerful computers in the world. When programmed to simulate brain activity, it took 40 minutes to crunch the data equivalent to one second of brain activity. But as has been said before, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And so much of your Sanctification comes through your mind. God gave us a book, and he appeals to the mind. And the transformation that we all desire to be more like Christ is going to occur through the mind. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Our text today is going to be addressing what we think about. And there's going to be a challenge to stop thinking about some things, but start thinking about other things. And we're going to look at the example of the Apostle Paul in this regard. This is absolutely essential for us to grab hold of. So I would like for you to engage your mind for the next 40 minutes, paying careful attention to what the Word of God has to say. And I will guarantee you, if you do so, the Lord will bless His Word and you will be able to have a transformed mind as is called for in Holy Scripture. Bless us now uh, through the reading and the preaching of your word, O oh Lord. I pray, God, that you would uh, just apply it to our minds. But, Lord, if it just stays there, if it just stays in the intellect and doesn't change our heart, doesn't change our affection, doesn't change our action, God, then we are a people most to be pitied. So I pray, God, that as we receive this word through our minds, Lord, that it would change us in every aspect of life and that it would change our church and our community and our families and that we would be able just to, with our minds, praise our God for giving us a renewed mind and a renewed spirit. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We just sang, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. And that's our principle that we want to capitalize on as we look about this text about what it is that we think. And my hope is that we will experience joy by thinking correctly. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. And if you would open up your copy of God's word and follow along with me, I'm going to read it in its entirety. 
Philippians 4, 6 through 9, God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is anything, if there any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You might find your home group help insert of assistance here as we look at the three different components of this text. We are told, first of all, to not be anxious, but to pray in verses 6 through 7, and then uh, to think about good things in verse 8, and then to obey like the Apostle Paul in verse 9. So first of all, here he says, do not be anxious, but pray in verses 6 and 7. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Another text might say, do not worry about anything. And this is a powerful term. That idea of, of anxiety, uh, the literal interpretation is to be torn apart. To be stretched apart. Isn't that the way you feel when you're anxious? You're torn apart. You're worried about the future. You're worried about the test results. You're worried about the bank account. You're worried about America. You're worried about your puppy. Whatever it might be. You are torn apart. The idea of worry comes from the English word to strangle. To strangle. That just brings about death, doesn't it? All sin brings about death. But what ends up happening is you strangle the moment. You strangle the mood. You strangle the opportunity when you are full of anxiety and full of worry. This is an imperative, so it's a command. So there's a command here. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, I understand some of you deal with anxiety. A lot of you deal with anxiety. And a lot of you are sensitive of spirit. So what happens when I look at you and I say, do not be anxious about anything, you start getting anxious, right? You start feeling guilty. You start getting overwhelmed. You start getting burdened. I don't deal with anxiety as so much about the future. I, deal, I tend to deal more when I'm struggling mood-wise with depression, about focusing upon the past. And what I've noticed is that when I read text where I'm told, do not be depressed, that depresses me, Right? So do not be anxious about your anxiety. Let me, that is a command. It is a sin to commit the sin, uh, the, uh, the sin of anxiety, which we'll talk about the reasons why. But also understand this, for, and this is really important. It's also permission to not be anxious. Sometimes many of us who are hyper-responsible, we sort of feel like if we're not anxious about something, we're not being responsible. We're missing out. Or we're not being real or whatever. We almost hold on to anxiety as a badge of honor. Look how anxious I am. I must therefore care. Folks, this is permission not to be anxious. It is not a human right to be anxious. If you're a child of God, it offends your father who is in heaven when you are anxious. Now, there's plenty of qualifiers here. I know there's physiological reasons for anxiety, uh, issues in your past and things like that. But folks, don't dismiss this. This is very important. Your God is in your future, and he's bigger than anything else that's in your future that you are concerned about. So we are to not be 
anxious. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Those of you who've had children, grandchildren, what if you're sitting there by the fire one night and you're just uh, sipping on your tea and you're just enjoying reading something or something like that and your little lovely child comes over and gets up in your nap and they look you in the eye and say, Dad, I just cannot sleep tonight because I just know you're not going to take care of me. I know that you're going to put me in a basket and put me on the neighbor's front steps and with a note saying, please take care of, I can't take this kid anymore. Wouldn't that hurt your feelings? Wouldn't that break your heart? Well, that's kind of what we do with God. God, I'm, I know you're big, I know you're, you love me and all that kind of stuff, but I just don't think you're going to take care of me. I know you spoke the universe into existence, but my 401k is bigger than all that, right? If you're rational about it, thinking... You're engaging the mind. It's really stupid. It's stupid to be anxious. We're tempted, though, aren't we? We're constantly tempted. And so much of our culture is actually almost designed to create this anxiety. So, basically, when we are anxious, we have little views of a big God. And that is actually the... That's actually what's behind so many of our sins. But in particular, this one, because this is an issue of trust. This is not a groaning temptation, a biological temptation like gluttony or temptation to lust or something like that. This is a temptation of the mind. So we're looking small, thinking small thoughts about God. Tozer says the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils uh, everywhere among us. So what's the solution? Well, guess what? Paul gives us the solution. By the way, do you think if, if anybody is anxious, don't you think Paul would claim the right to be anxious? You know, Philippians, I was going to write to you tell, tell you about not to be anxious or anything, but I got to tell you, I am sitting here in a Roman jail, been in prison for four years now, and I, and I have got an appeal going to Nero, who, by the way, is a nut job, and he has an opportunity to either have my head cut off or let me go free. So I'm just going to claim a little anxiety right now. You can understand that, can't you, Philip? That's not what he says. He's going to go on to say, you be, I'm going to be your example, but be anxious for nothing. But, but, and this important transition here, in everything by prayer. Notice what it says here. Again, he's, he's, he's given you the solution here. So how do I rid myself of this anxiety? You pray and you say, I've been praying, I've been praying, I've been praying. But you've got to let that prayer also control your mind. Take care of where you're concerned here. Notice he just keeps on going by prayer, by supplication, by thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God. Prayer, of course, is the general term for speaking to God. That's what we do. You don't have to burn incense. You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to be in church. You just open, you just talk to God. Because he is your father, if you're a Christian. If you're not, you need to become a Christian first because you need a mediator, Christ Jesus, uh, to be able to, to understand those prayers. You need the Holy Spirit to know how to pray. And supplication. Supplication refers back to the term that means lack or deprived of or without something. You go up and you talk to God about your needs. Now, that's actually one of our problems in our culture is there's a lot of, there's a lot of wants we label need. It'd be shocking to so many of our brothers and sisters living in the third world, the things that we think are absolute minimum essentials to, to, to make life uh, worth living here. But, but you go and you're, you're making a supplication. You're pointing out something that you need here. And that need might be, help me not to be anxious, <laughs> right? 
with thanksgiving, there's a spirit of gratitude. Y'all, this is essential. Because what will happen is if you don't have that spirit of thanksgiving, that spirit of gratitude, what you're going to start doing is you're going to start going down the road and you're going to talk about all these things that you need. And then you might start resenting God for not already having given them to you. But if you're thankful, if you're looking at the great leisure of life and you realize, wow, he has overwhelmed me with blessings. I got these issues now, but look at all those blessings. You're not going to let your prayer create anxiety in your life. Colossians 3.17 says this, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Listen, if all he gives you is eternal salvation, trust me, once you get to heaven, you're not going to be complaining about that. Even if you got there poor, naked, and diseased, and abandoned. Let the request be known to God. So with a prayer, supplication, let the request be known to God. This, again, is commanded. This is an, uh, you're instructed to make your request to God. The psalmist picked up on this thing, Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord, our God. Why you, yeah, I don't know what the modern versions, the paraphrased versions say, but it might be something like some trust in 401ks, trust, some trust in healthy food, trust, some trust in doctor visits that end up being just fine, but I'm going to trust in the Lord. We just trust in the Lord our God. We just trust in the chariots and horses were the, the things that many people were tempted some 3,000 years ago to trust in. That's not what we're trusting in, but the point is that we're to trust in God. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. He will make your path straight. Now, the theology of prayer, he's not trying to teach you about the, the biblical principles of prayer. This is really an, uh, the pleasure of prayer. He's trying to teach the effect of player, prayer from a, a subjective standpoint. And these are things that we can do without doubting, without questioning, while glorifying God. This is fulfillment of 1 Peter chapter 7. Uh, let all your anxiety be put on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. And he says, and then this will happen. This is the result of those things. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Don't you just get tired of peace every now and then? No. <laughs> Ever said anyone? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Some of y'all who've been sorely tested, who have gone through great grief, you know what he's talking about, don't you? There is a supernatural experience of peace that often will flood in at the moments when you most need it. But I'll be honest with you, folks. In our day, in our age, with all the messed up lives that we have, we need this peace all the time. So in a sense, there's an anxiety drives out peace, but prayer to your father brings that peace back in to you. And we know that to be true, right? There's none of us who haven't. Been anxious, who aren't sometimes anxious, who are not oftentimes anxious. John 14, 27 says this. This is the Lord Jesus Christ saying, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Some definitions of what this peace is like. James O'Brien says the peace of God is the serenity in which he lives. You get to experience a little bit of heaven, a little bit of Eden before the fall. 
John MacArthur says, it's the inward tranquility of soul granted by God. The high priest Aaron, Moses' brother, says, lift up, uh, uh, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you this peace. This peace is yours by right, Christian. It's yours by right. Probably one of the, the best examples I can think of when I experienced this peace, when I had to preach my own father's funeral. And, uh, and you know, it's just, those are difficult times and they're sad times and everything. And then you just add that extra little bit of potential anxiety standing in the pulpit at the First Presbyterian Church of Columbia where giants have stood and preached your father's funeral. And I was just, it was like there was a shower of God's peace upon me. And I felt an unction and a power that I have rarely felt, though I've been in ministry for decades. Y'all, it's there. But it's available for us all the time. But sometimes it's more, more evident than other times, but that's, that's our right as Christians. Jesus says, I give this to you. I leave this to you. When we don't believe him, we end up chasing that out, chasing it away. And what ends up happening is you try to soothe yourself through sin. Well, I'm just going to really dealing with this right now. So I'm just going to get drunk, take some drugs, watch some pornography, soothe myself, stay in bed. Eat too much. Watch a bunch of binge watch television. That's what we do. We, we find some substitute for actually trusting God because that's so much more difficult for us in so many ways. And what will happen? What happens when God does this? He will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That idea of guard is something that would have been very familiar to the Philippians. Uh, that town had been settled by Roman soldiers, veterans of the Roman wars. And every time they walked in and out of the gates of that city, they would pass a guard at that city. This is the garrison that keeps Philippi, Philippi safe. They would have seen it in any Roman city that they went to. This is what God does with you. That peace is going to garrison your heart. It's going to guard your heart. That is a promise. That is a promise. You notice it's your heart and mind. He's not necessarily trying to make a distinction. Your whole inner self will be guarded by that. Psalm 37 says this. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in him and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice in the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. It's really when we're not being still and waiting for him is when all these things seem to happen, right? We rush, we press, we get in a hurry. Things don't go well. Something that's not according to plan creates a problem. And that just sets off a domino of emotions that and we're just a train wreck within a few minutes. But we're hold, to hold every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So as I'm talking about this, I want you to think about what are the things you tend to be anxious about? What does the spirit put in your mind uh, has rebuked you? Uh, uh, is it loneliness? Is it money? Is it health? Is it all of the above? That's probably the area that you need to just bathe uh, in prayer and hand up to God. 
there could be multiple areas. We all have areas. This is a temptation for everybody. But one of the things we're supposed to understand here is that we are to be anxious for nothing, but you're to pray for everything. Notice the, the difference there. Wonderful, wonderful teaching. And, and to be honest with you, a little embarrassing, right? So much of what Jesus teaches uh, is in the Sermon on the Mount is embarrassing to us because we don't keep up that standard. But Matthew chapter 6, we saw this in a, as we confronted or were confronted by the law of God before we confessed our sins. says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. There's our command again. With what you eat or what you drink or about your body with what you put on. Is life not more than food and body more than clothing? He's ask, asking a question, isn't it? <laughs> isn't that a whole lot more to life than that? Look, here's an example. Look to the birds of the air. They neither, uh, uh, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you are being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? That's a good question. You know what? I mean, you know, like, I mean how, you know how many diets are out there on the Internet? I think based on everything that I've tried to follow based on the Internet, get sunshine, what do you call it, earthing, grounding, when you walk around barefooted, all that kind of stuff, you eat just meat, you eat just vegetables, whatever you mean. I'm actually going to be, live to be 475 years old. I've added so many years to my life right now. Uh, I mean, you, you, after a while, it just gets kind of out of hand, doesn't it, right? But here is, this is from God. You'll actually add to your life if you're not anxious. What point is anxiety? I mean, your doctor would tell you that, right? Your doctor would tell you. I always get, whenever time I go for a physical, I say, can you do the blood pressure after, after the, at the end of this meeting instead of at the before? Because y'all walk in with those white, white coats, and my, you can see the veins in my neck, you know? John Stott says this, wonderful John Stott, tells of a helpful conversation between two birds. It might be helpful for us to imagine how the birds might consider the, us as we are struggling to obey this principle. Two birds talking about, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so, said the sparrow to the robin. Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Well, it's not just a matter of not being anxious. Paul also wants us to do some good things. So that's where we get to now in, in verse 8 here, the good things we are supposed to put into our mind. He says here, finally, brothers, and he's, brothers, and he's going to give the Christians here a list of those good things. And in thinking about this, and, and I think you can affirm what John Milton says in Paradise Lost, a mind is its own place and in itself can make heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. We can be surrounded by the absolute best circumstances, but when we start twisting in bitterness, when we start twisting in regret, when we start twisting about, worried about the future and everything, you could be uh, on a palatial state in the autumn at the sunset with a big old sandwich next to you, and you're just filling the blank on what you want, and you could be miserable because you're just going down this anxious road. You actually can do something about that. 
So he's going to, uh, when Jesus quoted the Shema, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and what? With all of your mind. Did you know that Jesus added that? That's not actually in the original Shema. With all of your mind here. So here's the eight good things you to think about. Whatever is true, that which is reliable, faithful, distinguished from falsehood. And this has to do with our worship in a lot of ways. Our worship should be just garrisoned, as we've used that term, with truth. Everything we do, we need to be consumed with truth. Because truth will help ease away the anxiety. And it's a concern in the church. So much of the church now appeals to experience and emotion and that kind of thing instead of giving you rock-solid truth. It's one reason why we recite the Apostles' Creed most Sundays. It's because we want you to just to, just to have... We want that just to be... We don't, you don't have to sit down and tell your children, this is the Apostles' Creed. They're going to know it by age eight because they repeat it on Sundays. But there's a problem out there. John MacArthur says this, here, this, the focus today is on emotion and pragmatism. The importance of serious thinking about biblical truth is downplayed. People no longer ask, is it true? But does it work? And how will it make me feel? These latter two questions serve as a working definition of truth in our society that rejects the concept of absolute divine truth. Truth is whatever works and produces positive emotions. Well, let me tell you who really loves playing with your emotions is the devil. Now, God's, you know, God gave you the emotions. Emotions can be very good in a lot of times, too. But, you know, Star Wars fans, you know, and you're probably too embarrassed to raise your hands. But uh, that, that, that was a little harsh, Ellie. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, Jack. But uh, uh, I talk about your Star Wars fans. <laughs> you know that, that, that constant refrain? Trust your feelings. Trust your feelings. Every time that happens, I, I just yell at television, no, don't trust your feelings. Trust truth. Let truth guard your feelings. You know, because for somehow my feelings always have to do with you losing something and me gaining something. My convenience and you, my, incon your, my convenience and your inconvenience, whatever it might be. So we want to have a church. You want to have uh, a home group, you want to have your personal devotions, you want to read good books that, that emphasize truth in this age of lies, frankly, this age of uh, downplaying truth for emotion and experience. Bill Hull writes in his book, Right Thinking, what scares me is the anti-intellectual, anti-critical thinking philosophy that has spilled over into the church. The philosophy tends to romanize, uh, romanticize the faith, making the local church into an experience center. Their concept of church is that they are spiritual consumers and that the church's job is to meet their felt needs. Wow. I mean, again, you know, I've, I've mentioned a number of times, our church is an acquired taste. You know, they're, they're, we're just, there's no other reason to be here other than truth and worship, biblical worship. They're, they're, we're not trying to play on those emotions of the experience. We're not trying to manipulate anybody into anything. We're not trying to, to in a sense, buy your loyalty through a bunch of different programs. It's just truth. It's just truth. And that's actually extremely helpful because we are, attra we are attracting people who want truth. And... And this is going to help us to not be anxious. And then he keeps on going. All right, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, that is noble, dignified, lofty, elevated, venerable, and august. Probably doesn't include much media these days, right? 
it's a, it, there, there's a high and lofty morality here. Uh, this word is sometimes uh, translated as dignified when describing the, the, the principle of a, of a mature person. Whatever is just, that is upright, holy, which conforms to the law. In ancient times, this word was talking about the balance of a scale. And when a scale would be balanced perfectly, it would be just. So we want to keep just things in our mind. Uh, whatever is pure, that is a, a holy or a word that we use for holy or holiness. Uh, it's, it's, it's to have something that's pure. It doesn't have filth in it. It doesn't have, doesn't have um, uh, the, the wickedness of this world tainting it. It's not limited to just spiritual purity. It's anything, right? Whatever is lovely, this is pleasing and attractive. There is a universal standard of beauty. No one ever looks at a sunset at the beach and go, man, that's one ugly sunset. What a dog. Oh, man, man, yuck. Who would ever take a picture of that sunset? We're all going to, autumn leaves. You know, there's not a person in this room that says, man, I hate autumn. I just, I hate pumpkin spice, <laughs> maple trees. I don't like any of that kind of stuff. Give me the heat of August, man, because, and, 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 and the associated malaria that comes with that in South Carolina. You know, give me that, you know. We, 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 there is a universal, and, and, and you know, a lot of people, and, and good artists all know that. Even modern artists know that. I'm going out on a limb here, but we had opportunity, uh, we had opportunity to go up in the Smithsonian back when one of our sons lived in Washington some years ago and went to the Museum of Modern Art, which I have scrupulously avoided every time I've ever gone to Washington. I, I don't want to see a big hulk of metal that, that looks like a boxcar exploded and say, this is called love. You know, now, what? That's a big hunk of metal. But I'll be honest with you, a lot of that modern art is beautiful. It's beautiful. I, and, but of all my memories, who's the guy that cut off his ear? Van Gogh, right? The Dutch, well, he was French-Dutch guy. All right. There was a little teeny Van Gogh. I mean, there's this huge museum. I mean, you've been to Smithsonian? I mean, it's like miles of museums. So you're going through there, and you're looking at all this. And there, right by the door, you could hardly notice it was an original Van Gogh. And it was a, it was a vase of flowers. And the vase was this teal color. And I just couldn't get my eyes off of it. And I just sat there taking in Van Gogh. And I just couldn't get enough of it. And I turned around, and there was about six or other, seven other people taking in Van Gogh. Because we all get beauty. Now, the devil hates beauty. He loves. Compare an orc with an elf. That was a stretch of an illustration. But anyway, some of you got it. That's the difference. So you don't look at the orcs. Now, let me just give you a tip here. This probably means you need to really avoid social media until later on in the day. You need to avoid headlines. You probably need to pull away from these things because you, you need to fill your mind with whatever is lovable. Whatever is commendable, that's of good repute. Romans 8, 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There's a constant sense of worship. If there's any excellence, that this is high moral standards. If there's anything worthy of praise, if God praises it, that's what you want to. That's what you want to be thinking about. Now, the interesting thing about this list of virtues, these eight list of virtues, they're they're not made like this in any Christian 
doctrine anywhere in Scripture. These are actually pagan virtues. He is quoting pagan philosophers about the virtues of what it means to be a good person. And he's taking that and he's incorporating that and basically he sanctified those good views. Again, one of our principles is all truth is God's truth. So here he has taken some principles they grew up with and said, by the way, you need to direct yourself towards Christ, but the pagans here had it right. They had some of these virtues correctly. And what does he say here? He says, think about these things. 1 Corinthians 2.16, we are to have the mind of Christ. Not only, actually, I misspoke that. It doesn't say we are to have the mind of Christ. It says we have the mind of Christ. We have the spirit of Christ, so therefore we have the mind of Christ. And he tells us to think about these things. That idea of think is either, is, is perhaps uh, dwell upon these things might be your translation. But it, uh, in the English language, it's where we get our word logic and log- logarithms from. It's a mathematical term. We are to calculate upon these things and see we we have been trained in a sense to be kind of intellectually lazy if it takes a lot of effort we just don't want to do it but what god is saying is no you need to focus you need to calculate you need to do math on these things constantly filling your mind with these things and what you'll find is the anxiety is just not going to be there as much psalm 101 says this, I walk in the integrity of my heart within my house. I will not set anything before my eyes that is worthless. This, that will help you. Your life is a product of your thoughts. Proverbs 23, 7, so as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Paul commands the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And he wants now to point briefly to an example of himself. He says here, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, they learned from Paul and now they've received this letter from Paul and, uh, and then they've heard about what he has been teaching in Rome. Do those things that they know are to be orthodox Christian things. And we are to practice those things as Paul practices those things. A a nice little picture of what this looks like based on your age group is Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach with what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all aspects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show in integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Declare these things, exhort, rebuke, and with all authority, let no one disregard you. I, you know what I really love? I love that expectation for younger women older and younger men because our culture just doesn't have much expectation for young people. I really think that's one reason why we've got so many young people coming to this church is we actually have a standard that we expect them to have as well. We're not trying to dumb down the biblical standard for young people. We actually think they, they will want to rise up to that standard. It, it, it makes me sad to think, but a lot of young people think that uh, especially young men, they think being holy is a, is a female thing. Like they think singing is a female thing. 
And, and it makes me sad because being holy is a God thing. And if you're a God person, a Christian, you should crave holiness. There's nothing feminine about it. I'm telling you what, you will never meet a more man's man, the Apostle Paul. That guy was something. Let you float around on the water in three different shipwrecks and see how you come out, right? Let you be stoned to death. Let you be beaten, whipped, harried out of town. And this is at the end of that. Uh, this is when he's writing Philippians. This is at the end of this trail of tears he has gone through for 10, 15, 20 years. And there's not an ounce of self-pity. And he wants to be more holy. He wants to sing louder and better than he ever has before. He was a young man. He's now an old man. And he wants to improve in all those categories. But here's this wonderful promise at the end. And what if you do those things... You don't be anxious. You put on those eight things and you listen to the teaching of the Apostle Paul, all of Scripture, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, if you don't do those things, you're going to have a hard time finding that peace. It's going to take some effort here. Being anxious is easy. Being depressed is easy. Uh, walking in holiness and confidence and faith is, takes effort. But it's worth it, isn't it? Y'all got too much peace? Anybody just got too much peace? <laughs> and the God of peace will be with you. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything, that I may calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know this truth, to apply this truth, and to be able to teach others in this truth, direct them to the way of the Lord. Uh, in, in so many of your commandments, they're all hard sometimes for us to obey. But I think when you start talking to uh, dealing with our emotions, we really struggle with anxiety. We really struggle with de depression. We really struggle with joy. We really struggle with contentment. So we thank you, God, for devoting the end of Philippians to addressing all those things. Help us to be honest enough to say, I've got a problem here. I've got an issue here and I need the Lord. We thank you, God, that that promise holds true to everyone who brings his request before the Lord, who thinks these good things, that the peace of God will be with us. Be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.